Hey, welcome to Mojo Moments. I'm your host, Thane Calder. We're going to shake it up today. Mark is who's also, and he wrote the notes here. He put it in big. The co-host of Clickbait and Switch. Check it out in our other lineup of podcasts. But anyway, Mark, who's often with me, sort of doing riffs and outros. I've said, you know what, Mark? I think Mojo Moments would be a better podcast if you're with me. Because you would ask the smart questions while I focus on the silly questions. And so he's agreed to join me today in conversation with Tony Chapman. He has one of those names that sounds very familiar. Uh, but a lot of friends, a lot of people in the marketing creative circles have said, you guys should really meet. So we're meeting today. Hey, uh, Tony, welcome to Mojo Moments. Honored to be here, brother. It's a great podcast. You've got uh, a great clause in terms of really uncovering insights that can help uh, other people. So thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And, you know, it's it's kind of weird. Like, uh, we've never actually met all these years. And, and, and in a way, you're kind of like, uh, don't take this badly, but Al Waxman, kind of the king of Kensington. And I don't know. I'm <laughs> aging myself, at least here. Uh, <laughs> and me. But it's, uh, no, it's, uh, listen, I, uh, it's, it is amazing. We have, because you've got uh, our pastor to cross, and it's amazing they haven't. So what a great time to do it in your podcast. Well, awesome. So right now, just a little context for uh, the folks out there. Uh, I'm here. I'm here with my my wingmate, better half for sure, Mark. We are in the uh, wilds, colds of the north, and you are hiding out with the monkeys and uh, parrots of Costa Rica. That is true. That's a true confession. I'm spending the winter. Uh, I've brought my studio down and working remote, and the internet's fantastic down here. And I'm on the bottom of the Nicoya Peninsula. It's one of the five blue zones in the world where people die healthy, often in, in their uh, over 100 years old. So it's, it's got the lowest incidence of diabetes and heart disease and cancer. And a lot of it's attributed to uh, uh, a stress-free and the diet, the fresh air. And so I thought, you know what, for uh, three months, um, I'd rather be in a lockdown here than anywhere else. So have you been embracing kind of a plant-based diet while you're down there in these blue zones or...? So I, I love cooking. Uh, I actually started cooking when my mom had to go back to work when I was young. My sister wasn't oriented for the kitchen. And I started cooking and getting big smiles. And so my mom wasn't a great cook either. So just started to produce things. And people go, this tastes great. And I just fallen in love with it. Coming down to Costa Rica, I've absolutely, uh, you know, you can get a, a piece of tuna that would cost $200 in Toronto for $15. You, you, the fresh fish and the beans and the rice and the squash and Everything that's in that diet is something we're really embracing uh, wholeheartedly and uh, no processed foods, no sugars, and we feel great for it. So I had no idea we're going to go down this uh, rabbit hole. We do this a lot, rabbit holes, you'll see later on. But you, you're talking about a blue zone. What, what does that mean for, for me? So there's five areas in the world where people uh, uh, live to 100 in a much higher uh, percentage than anywhere else. And they die healthy of old age. And what that means is eventually, they, of course, they die, but they're not uh, spending the last 10 years because inflammation's taken over or cancer or diabetes or heart disease. So, it, And they attribute it to fresh air, the minerals coming out of the Pacific Ocean, uh, the water, which is high in calcium, and their diet. And I think the most important thing is Costa Rica is pura vida. It's pure life. It's about having stress-free. So, I mean, the place I'm in, Santa Teresa has no stop signs, no, no lights, the road's made of mud, and everybody gets along on the road. And there's no honking horns. There's no, and it's just that attitude, which is part of what I'm trying to embrace uh, in my life, not just in terms of what I eat and digest, but also how I approach things in the past that used to really annoy me. So this is actually awesome segue because uh, I'm still, and so is Mark, in the thick of agency advertising marketing world, which is renowned for stress, and uh, and you uh, spent a huge part of your career in that world. Uh, do you feel what you're learning now could have been applied? I'm assuming when you were back in agency land, it was stressful. Absolutely, I think I look and feel younger 
today than I did eight years ago. That's how much stress the agency world is. Because we're all, if for anybody that runs an agency, and more importantly, if their skin's in the game, that's their livelihood. Their family's attached to it. They start, you see your, the employees you work to are family, their kids. Everybody's focused on your ability to continue to make things happen. And you're constantly worried about losing a good client, losing a good employee, and you're living under that stress all the time. And even if you win a big piece of business, you're only as good as the next brief. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a tough business and it's a business that's people oriented and it's a business where you could have the most amazing relationship with a client and suddenly someone new comes on board and everything changes. So it's really, a, a, it's, it, it's a lot of your destinies left up to a lot of things that aren't in your control. What you can control though is one of the most amazing worlds to be in because you're creating every day, you're inventing every day, you're not, you're not, you know, you're not doing the same task every day. So there's incredible benefits in being in the business. But you know, every yin and yang, the other side of it, as you said, is uh, is stress. So I feel for you guys, especially nowadays, where clients yeah. have gone from yeah. spending budgets. That's what I grew up is I had a marketing budget to spend and they would carve off things to experiment. Our business was all about big ideas, things that were out of the norm. And they went from spending money and that and the skipping to work and how exciting it is to one day having to invest those budgets. And you go from spending to investing. Next thing you know, what's your ROI? How do I know that idea is going to work? Does that make sense? Let's see what the U.S. is going to do before we spend our money here. And the whole psychology goes from creativity and energy yeah. and passion and pursuit to one really about process. And when that started to happen, I knew it was my time to get out. I want to jump on that because I was looking through like the the history and back with the uh, Capital C, you had a viral video with you know the bride has a massive hair wig out, and like I watched it, I was like that's not getting made today. No, and that was. That was Ben Crook. Uh, we, we wanted to test the insight. Here's the thing. They wanted to launch a new shampoo. And I looked at myself and going, well, it's budget. But I said, does Canada really need another shampoo? And we looked at category. If you can remember that. And the category was from premium down to value brands. But even within each of those segments, here's the shampoo. If you have curly hair, blonde hair, gray hair, dyed hair. Dandruff. Yeah. Dandruff. And it went on and on and on. So, uh, my partner, Ben Klein, came up with the idea was, why do women, and it's hard to say this nowadays because it's supposed to be gender neutral, but do women react to bad hair days in an almost irrational way? It was this hypothesis. And we tested it out. And next thing you know, stories came back. Oh, my God, I had a bad hair day. What did I do? I run into my old boyfriend. Or I ran into my old boyfriend's new girlfriend. Or it was just when I was getting for a job. Everybody personalized the hair almost like uh, uh, Samson. It, it, was their, it was their armor. So he said, let's test out this thing. And we went to the, the brand manager at the time and said, what if we just did this little video and let's pick the worst situation you could have a bad hair day, your wedding. And let's just see if this insight works. And we didn't know anything about viral marketing. So we put this video up and we put it out there, $3,000. And just to see the reaction, if there was going to be any reaction. And next thing you know, a day later, Ryan Seacrest on a national radio show in the States talks about this bride wigging out and plays the screen. And all of a sudden, like a pinball game, we go from being 10,000 views to like a million views. And next, and next thing you know, Letterman and Norm Jewison weighs in and <laughs> Oprah wants the girls on the show. And even when they find out it, it was a hoax. But the client at the time didn't know what to do with it because they were screaming and drinking and there was reality. And they, they pulled it. They wouldn't let the girls go on Oprah with sunset t-shirts on because they were worried it'd be attached. This is the same company who also had Axe as a brand. Could have bikini girls parading around. So the whole thing, and this is kind of what we were all about. We just we would do things, punch outside our weight class. And it wasn't just that. Hockeyville, uh, bring home the Stanley Cup, uh, money for life. Some of the stuff that we did, I look back now and I go, honestly believe would be in this hall of fame. And it was just because we had a team of people and clients that said, let, why not? Let's try it. I'm not, I'm willing to risk my career. I'm willing to risk my reputation because this thing might actually engage. And we all know in, in marketing, attention is the oxygen of marketing. Without attention, you're nothing. And so that's that, that part of the world I love, but where it stopped and people stopped I remember presenting this. I won't name the client, but I pres we pres they, they had this concept for uh, Doritos. 
bold. They want us to do something bold. We're kind of going bold Doritos. Like, you know, it's just one of those, you know, it's to, and so I came up the idea saying, what if we did, what if we got into the male psychology of, and called it bold of steel instead of balls of steel. And we came up with an idea of a promotion is you could win one of these 10 prizes that everybody say, yeah, that'd be cool. You know, bungee jump up the highest point in the world. And instead of the sweepstakes at the end and nobody yeah, yeah, yeah. wins, every week we do a reverse sweepstakes that says, hey, you're still in the game. You haven't been eliminated yet. You start going, okay, that I was talking to my friends. I want to do that. I don't really want to win that prize. Next week, you're still in the game and reverse it. So we did that. And then we did this sense of uh, buying media. So Edgewalk had just opened up. I got We got to buy Edgewalk for $50,000 and called it the Doritos Bold of Steel. All of this, we pitched the, the clients, like the standing ovation. Yeah. I've never, I floated out of the room. A week later, no phone call. <laughs> I called, finally called. I said, well, we love it, but we're waiting to see what the U.S. does. Oh. And I said to myself, and yeah. PepsiCo was a client for 30 years. We did some amazing stuff. But at that point, I went, that destiny is no longer in the hands of Canadian marketers like it used to be and should be. We should be a Petri dish for the world. We should be creating world campaigns and testing it here and then roll it out. And then instead yeah, test it here, on. man. And the U.S. came in with some bite into a really spicy chip and, man, you're bold or something. And it was, <laughs> it was uh, you know, it wasn't what we're about. You started out your story, which I love, saying I won't name the client, but you fully. <laughs> well, I, went, I didn't name the client. I didn't name the the, the brand manager. I did, but I did. So Doritos, I apologize. And listen, okay. by the way, this individual we've done some, we did some incredible work with. Her, or his hands were tied uh, because it just was the reality of you're there to invest money. And before you spend, invest your dollars, let's see if we can get something from the States that'll work. So you're the, you're the guy that ended up with the, like the wig gig, triggering clients calling, hey, can you do a viral campaign for me? Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, sure. We're just going to land on the, the cultural moment that's going to firestorm uh, the world and, and it's free. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. You know? Yeah, and you know, it's like that was the top ten YouTube hit. We didn't know anything about it. The funny thing is, did we ever repeat it? No. I, did we try? Clients would come in. Can I have a bridezilla? And I'm going, no. The, you have to have an insight that really a, a bride cutting off her hair because she's so yeah. freaked out resonated because it struck an emotional chord. And the second you try to jam your brand in there, your brand doesn't create that heartbeat. It's this. It's the, I'm about to get married. And, this, and my hair is a disaster is the moment. Now, if you could then slide your shampoo and it's saying, helps get a, take away bad hair days, it's a stretch, but you're still there. When you can really weave a brand into a storyline, like I think Red Bull's done for years with gives you wings and does all this cool, crazy stuff. And that connects, that to me is just a natural. But it's amazing that yeah, essentially, I, I obviously I've been, TikToking, or not doing the TikToks, but sort of hanging out on them with my kids and stuff and checking them oh, out. You're a big fan of the dancing. Yeah. You do the well, dancing. No, no, right? I, I try not to. I try not to. It's better for the world. But yeah, what you're essentially doing is essentially what TikTok is all about today. You know, like really grabbing those moments and the ones that take off, take off. And it's. I just, I just put up an article on LinkedIn about, I called it your unique emotional positioning because I need you to have an acronym, UEP. And I basically said, segmentation's dead. Yeah. It's done. Like, what does a 70-year-old that, that it's out surfing every day have to do with a 70-year-old that's basically checked out? So why are we looking at age instead of... And it's a good guy, David Allison, that talks about values. I said, segmentation's done. It, it, it's, it's what matters in your intent. And I said, your unique selling proposition's over. I said, Which, who's got a unique selling proposition anymore? That's not matched in a nanosecond. Like who's, what's unique? You know, you have those competitive maps that clients do and they talk about where they're positioned and all their other ones. I'm going to the consumer. They just see it all, all coming together in the sea of sameness. And then you look at, you say to the client, you say, listen, I want to just put a polygraph on your arm and say, tell me how much of your business you're now selling on deal price offers, free prize inside compared to the way you used to. Well, you know, no, just do the math. Tell me, show me the curve over the last 10 years, and I will bet your volume 
more and more of your volume, more the, the, you're lubricating your supply chain by by creating financial offers. Essentially, you're teaching the consumer to be treasure hunters, to gain your margins, and you're lo you've lost their emotional connection. So I put this up saying, here's how to regain your emotional connection, but it's going to be tough for you to do it because you're not the hero in the story. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm the forever young. I, I'm I'm the fastest network. I got 5G. No, no, nobody cares. Stick a fork in my eye. I don't care about your 5G network. What I do care about is can I be working remote and having a conversation <laughs> with you? Now, if your internet lets me do that, I'm emotionally connected to you. But that's to me. Now, over here, you know, you're, no one is just, he's a big gamer. He wants to know that he's got bandwidth. We got to personalize the message. That we can't. And that's the world is going. It's emotional connections. If I was running an agency right now, if I was 40 again, I would take that article and I would say, and I've caught some waves. I caught the shopping marketing wave. I caught the viral marketing wave. I caught real-time intelligence wave. This is the biggest wave. This is a wave an agency can surf because you can say to clients, if you do not have an emotional connection to the consumer, they're not buying into your brand. You're bribing them to buy your brand. And here's what you got to do to do it. And as people like you, when you're doing podcasts and you're connecting people and listeners to ideas and thoughts, if a brand can be part of that, I think that's where you can build your UEP. So we didn't have that language, and I think it's really eloquent, but just a little side story is in 2019, uh, we were working with StubHub, uh, the ticketing platform, but not in Canada, actually, uh, their UK team. And it was more of an emerging play for them there in North America hadn't matured, but was getting more mature. And we uh, we worked with our former client from Kijiji, uh, who who moved over there to run their marketing. And essentially, like a lot of these pure play online marketplaces, it's all performance media and all the geekdom stuff, and just buying your way to to getting people to click. And um, but he, as he proved out on Kijiji, is you can create an emotional connection because there is one. There is a true emotional moment. Think about if you're getting a ticket to your your favorite hockey game or to uh, you know to see Adele play, and uh, you know there's there's huge emotion in, in buying that ticket to the event you want to go to, and and so we had to do a pilot to prove out that you can't just buy your way into people's minds. You can get into them emotionally. And uh, he successfully got some scraped away, some marketing dollars to prove that out. And, and, and the, the metrics were through the roof. The emotions drove traffic. Um, the only unfortunate thing is this COVID thing happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, and all events <laughs> in the world stopped. <laughs> but take that insight that you're talking about. And I would even go beyond Adele and I'd say, how about the divorced dad that gets his teenagers twice a week and wants to repair, wants to have a relationship with it and scores tickets to Adele that his daughter or son loves or the hockey game, you know, but I'm just saying like you could, but take, think about other things that you could apply that insight to and you're building an emotional connection because you're helping that you're helping those people get to where they want to go. And that's what I try to do with my podcast is try to chatter the matters about helping you get to where you want to go. The hero is you listening. And I'm going to give you some positive insights that, that you can apply to your business, that you can apply to your life, that you can apply to the community, that you can apply to relationships. And, and because I think that world is that world of serving and being humble and having humility is something that every brand that can. Now, you have to have a stub up. You can't do that with a brand that sits on a shelf because there's no emotional connection, but StubHub, it's a genius what you did. And, and it's, uh, I know the top, one of the top uh, concert promoters, uh, he's got his own business now, he's on one of my podcasts, Stephen Shaw, and I'd love to introduce him to you because you should take that thinking into, uh, and this guy's doing exhibits like uh, Titanic and uh, uh, you know major things that travel the world. And again, it would play to that. So let's do this little, and I know Mark, you'll you have a lot of good questions. I'm just curious, like, because you you start ch talking about you know your your podcast and chatters that matters and the transition from from the the hustle of agency life into becoming your own brand. Let's say was that therapy or was it something you knew you wanted to do? 
It's a great question. So when I, I knew I wanted out of the agency world, and it took me about two and a half years to set up. So the side of employees were with me 25 years. So they could get a package or they could stay on with, the, with the, the new operation. And I found a great, Nick Dean was a great guy to take that over. And when I left, I had no idea what I was going to do. I wanted out. I thought probably he's going to teach, but I wanted to do something. So I'm always a head, heart, and hands guy. So I got to be intellectually stimulated. I got to be emotionally rewarded. And when I'm doing something, funny enough, money chases me. I have no issue finding uh, business if I'm like those three. If I chase money, it all collapses. But if I get those three right, I build those three things right, it comes. So when I, I got out and I started to, because I'd always built my agency being a public speaker, I would go out and talk about where marketing was going. When, when um, Frank Palmer uh, kind of left DDB, he was the thought leader in our industry. And nobody stepped in. There's kind of Paul Lavoie was saying, but nobody really stepped in and said, I'm willing to put a voice out there. Now, to be a thought leader, it's not about, I'm here to talk about what I did at FCB. To be a thought leader is you got to go out there and put stuff out that might even piss your clients off. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that. I started doing more speaking. And again, it wasn't about what Capital C was doing. It was about where I thought the future was going. And then I got out and I I started getting asked to go out and put speeches. And I, the first time I put a fee on, I was I, like, I was felt like an imposter. And I put this fee down and they said, yeah, for sure. So I was like, God, why don't I ask for more? <laughs> and then I started really building my business first as a speaker. But I looked at the horizon and said, aging white guy in the public speaking circuit that wants to talk about the future. That's kind of the person in the t-shirt with the sleeve, the tattoos, crazy hair, like D Daniel Craig looking or, you know, uh, Faith Popcorn. It's just, it's, I don't, so I said, well, maybe instead of just speaking, I'm going to host conferences. Now, I'm not talking about an MC role. I'm going to get out there and be a journalist on stage. And I'm going to do three things. First of all, I'm going to set the stage and invite audience in. So they're not just voyeurs or participants. I'm going to outline what the quest is going to be over the next two days and what they're going to fill their knapsack with. I'll do an opening keynote put the bar energy right up front. But my real role is I, it's not so much introducing on stage. So Mark, if you're getting up and you got off stage and say, Oh, before you leave, I got some questions. I ask you the questions you want to answer. I spike the emotional cords you want to resonate. And I ask the questions the audience wants to answer in doing so I'm drawing a bridge. Then when I moderate a panel, I don't do one question to the four people that, I put on mm. as like a talk show. The panels are boredom. I'm not sure you agree, what you said earlier. Let's talk about it. At the end, I've got this weird synthesizing brain that I stand up at the end of the conference going, at the beginning, we invited you on this quest. We're going to chase one word, purpose. Talked about over the last, we're going to hit some speed bumps. We're going to be accelerating. Here's what I ta I'm taking away from this conference. And so when they leave and they go home, people say, did you get good value for that? Was that a good, remember the spending money versus investing? Is that a good investment? Absolutely. We focused on the word purpose. Here's what we did. Started doing that. And next thing you know, clients would bring me back year after year. I'm talking about five years in a row. And, I'm, and so this was just rocking. I was, I was yeah. going to China and Brazil and Spain and Scotland, all over North America, having the time of my life. And then COVID hits. And I'd had a podcast as sort of this playing with a podcast called Chatter That Matters. And I was getting like 300 downloads. And I said, well, what am I going to do now? And I didn't, thankfully, because I'd worked so hard in my life and I live a fairly modest life, I didn't need the money. So I said, what am I going to do? Just your question. I said, I'm going to help small business out because I'll tell you something, in the event space, it's all small business and they're going to get crushed because I had four phone calls today with conferences being canceled. That's me. And I think all the people staging those conferences and the hotels and everything else. So I took Chatter That Matters and I said, I'm going to turn it into a small business matters, pitched it to RBC. Ten days later, we had our first podcast out. And since COVID began, we've done 35 podcasts, 31 videos, maybe 150 posts, at least 100 on-air interviews. Uh, and it's all about helping everyday Canadians and small business owners get to want their, where they want to go. And not once has RBC asked for anything in return. Don't, can you help me sell a credit card? They want to be where this emotional position. We want to be there to help. And then I bring them in and talk about some of the stuff they're doing. 
Because I think that spending $500 million to help Canadian youth find and pursue a path to life is a great thing to do. Or supporting Olympians that, that are starving but want to train is a great thing to do. And it's been a great partnership. So when you talk about it, I thought I was, I didn't know what I was going to do. Now I'm as, probably as busy as I've ever been, but without the stress, without employees, without clients, because I'm in control of the content. And guess what? We're going to be back on with another 24, 24 weeks of national radio. You're the first people to hear that. I'm going to be announcing it in the next couple of days. Um, and it all began because the hero of the story is not me or RBC. It's the little people that are being crushed through this pandemic and uh, maybe just raising a social conscience that we've all got to do something to, uh, to keep this, this boat afloat. That's a long answer. I'll shorten now on. No, but that was a brilliant answer. I, I, and what's interesting is, uh, you know, you, you clearly had, you got mojo, a sincere mojo of being on the stage and, and bringing thought leadership to the fore and, and turning the panel panels that are the biggest bore in the world, actually making them work. Uh, but what's interesting is you, how you pivoted in this, in the, in the pandemic. And, 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 and I know, and you probably many times back in your agency life, we often wish we could take our skills and bring them to the little guys, but they never had the budgets or the means to, to hire the capabilities of an agency. And, you know, it's usually, oh, occasionally do a little pet project, a passion project on the side for that. But you're essentially being able to, to tune and channel that energy through the, your podcast right into that community. It's, a, it's an honor. It's a, probably the greatest reward I've had in life. And I sometimes, and I was just saying to my wife, um, I, I think the reason I was, did everything in the past is to set me up for the, to do this now. Because it's, it, is a, it is a pure labor of love. I understand what that word is now. I understand my words to serve others, which I never, under, you know, it was always nice to say. But, uh, uh, but it, it's, it's just fantastic. The people that reach out and uh, share their stories, uh, the John Love episode. I mean, Anthony Longo, uh, what they share in these, in these podcasts um, are, are just beautiful, beautiful lessons. They're not preaching. They're not five steps to a better uh, life. It's just, it's, it's real. It's raw. Uh, it, they're warts. Everything's exposed and coming out of it. I just think it's a, it's a fantastic thing. I'm going to, I'm going to, ju- sorry, Mark, I'm on a roll here, dude. Go for it. Cause it makes me think, uh, so Mark, I'm going to give Mark credit for this. He, he found in our, in the pre-research, uh, that your first business was a lemonade stand. Yeah. Okay. Is this like full arc back to the lemon state being, you know, you, you, you know what it is to be a small business. And, uh, so my mother was this, um, my dad was bipolar, self-medicated with alcohol because you just didn't know how to treat it in those days. So we were moments away from losing everything all the time because when you're, uh, uh, bipolar and you're manic, uh, you'll spend anything. You just you're just trying to fuel this this insane energy. My mom kept a roof over her heads, but Salsa found time to teach stuff. She died of old age at 53. She lived a tough life. She lived it, but boy, the lesson she gave myself and my sisters. But I wanted to do a lemonade stand one day. I think it's probably five or six years old, and I I remember it like it was yesterday. And I don't remember a lot of stuff. I'm more of the present, the future. And I just, you know, wanted to put the table out front, lemonade, shake the, the neighbors for a couple of quarters or nickels or pennies or whatever it was. And my mom said, absolutely. Let's, let's get to work. And she sold me the lemons. She sold them. She made me figure out. <laughs> I love it. She sold them to me. She made me, she made me figure out how much lemonade per jug and what I'd have to charge to make a profit. There's no way I was setting up in the front of our house because we were in a shady area. So I had to drag this thing down to the park. And it wasn't like she took over and hers her project. So I, I, you know, go down, set this stuff up. And she encouraged me to sample, to give out little samples of this incredible lemonade. I have no idea if I made any more money or less money, but it became my money. And I, that lesson that she taught me there, and I didn't even realize it, it, it resonated with me my entire career 
Uh, and it's, it's why I'm so vocal with the way this government's running their money right now is you have to earn your way forward. And that lesson, uh, uh, you know, and I hope she's listening up above because I talk about her a lot, but it is a lesson that I think every parent should teach every child is, is earn your way forward. Earn it. And I would tell you, I was a kid that would knock on neighbors' doors and ask for their empty pop bottles for my club. They say, what club? I said, my club down the street, which is my house. I take up five bags at a time and, and, and get a quarter for it. And I wouldn't spend any money until I made a buck. And that was up and down the street to Clark's convenience store. And I went back, you know, later in life to go back. Your home's much smaller than it was. And the convenience store is much closer than I imagined it. In yeah. those days, it seemed like a mile each way. But I tell you something, it, it's just the way she wired my work ethic. And my wife laughs at, uh, at me because it's, uh, it's, it's just ingrained in me to earn and continue. And, and she said, what are you going to do in your 70s? I said, I will go into retirement homes and do put on a, a, a circuit. She said, well, nobody will listen or pay. She said, I won't know by then. So it's, uh, <laughs> Robin, it's just, Robin, Robin, better call Saul and be better call Tony. Yeah, better call, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, so a little anecdote is funny because I was th in your lemonade stand story. So my daughter, uh, well, now she's 14, but when she's around 11, her and her buddy decided to do a lemonade stand and we didn't, we didn't give as much of the life lesson thing that, your mom did in terms of, we were like, okay, here's lemonade. And, you know, from the minute made thing, go make it. And, mm. and her and her friend were summertime hot day and they were actually like killing it. Like, so they were like, can we get more? And we're like, well, now with your money, we're going to buy more. Cause they were, they're bringing in the money, but we're like, we're starting to feel bad, you know, like, like they're, they're making too much money. And we said, maybe you guys should like raise money for a cause, like maybe half the revenues or whatever go to a cause. Like, oh, okay, okay. So then they turn it into this cause thing, 50% for the cause, whatever. They came back and they made a kajillion dollars because <laughs> everyone's like, these cute girls doing lemon stand for a good cause, half the money. Now they're making way more money because people are like, here's 20 bucks, such a good cause. <laughs> and they were like, okay, okay. Okay, what do we teach them? We're like, all that money has got to go to the cause because, frankly, it's now really embarrassing that you're you're sure. you're milking the cause. <laughs> so, Mark, you were jumping in. I was, and you stole all my material. Um, is it true that you were born in Montreal? I am. I'm, well, I was born originally in Saint Rose of Laval, and then uh, we moved across to uh, Dorval, the West Island. Uh, at a tough age to move. It was great going into grade six. And uh, it just, I remember being just how difficult it is to leave everything you know, your friends, mm -hmm. people you play ball hockey with, and have to kind of carve out your new space. But again, I think a good lesson in life. And, you know, my mom went back to work right about then. And that's when, you know, you just kind of forces you to grow up a bit. And I think that sometimes today, uh, maybe with parents, we just really want to, we want to take away the speed bumps before kids hit them. That was a speed bump. But uh, it, it's kind of interesting because I'm originally from Toronto and I moved to Montreal and I feel like the way I grew up in Toronto has led me to have a certain way of viewing Montreal. And like I moved here because I obviously feel like a connection with where I grew up. And for you, it was almost the inverse. Like you grew up in Montreal kind of went to Toronto and hit it big. Do you feel like that that growing up in this culture of, of Quebec and in Montreal helps you in a way stand out in Toronto and have a sort of different view of the world? I felt I felt and probably the curse of my life was always feeling like a bit of an imposter in Toronto because I didn't have the Queen's Western University. I didn't have the old boys network. Uh, I wasn't blue blood. So it was a bit of a chip on my shoulder is probably what Montreal gave me that kind of came in and said, you know, uh, I got to fight for things. Mm -hmm. And so that people have always accused me at times of being an intense. Uh, and that's where I came out of it. But that's more the changing circumstance. I think what Montreal taught me that I really only valued afterwards when I invested in the business with a guy called Pierre Perrant is how special Montrealers are. This is free de corps. Uh, it's almost as pure vita, you know, live for the day, live for the moment. Uh, but I didn't have the French Canadian upbringing that I think is really what, you know, where they, after church, they get together as a family 
at noon and they bring their instruments and their food and they dance and party and laugh until midnight. Like I didn't, I didn't, because we grew up in an English part of Montreal, but only after meeting Pierre and getting to know more and more, I mean, I've had a lot of friends who were obviously uh, Francophones, but really understanding that side of the business, I think made me a better business person because you realize that there's more to life than just chasing and pursuit. I'm not saying Montrealers aren't ambitious. It's the most entrepreneurial uh, culture. They're great storytellers. They're great creative. They're, they're, but I think it's, they also are, uh, their hearts beat strong. And I, that sounds so back. Yeah, life matters. It, it's, I don't want to be disparaging the rest of, I'm not saying the rest of Canadians don't, but you asked me about Montrealers. That's to me what makes Montreal special. You go to the East Coast and what makes East Coast special is probably the same thing. And it's maybe Ontario yeah. that has this more, uh, still caught up in this English monarchy of it's, you know, uh, we don't have that. It's, it's just much more uh, individual versus collective. And now I'm going to get every, every Ontario mad at me. So I'm out. No, no, I'm going to, I'm going to help you out of this because, you know, I actually often, uh, I'm a big fan of, of, of Toronto and, and, and every part of the country has something interesting to offer. But I think the insight that I'm landing on in terms of mojo of being from away or from, from not there, that bit of that extra energy that it drives. Like I, I'm a little obsessed with listening to podcasts and uh, with comedians and all that. And often like Will Arnett, uh, with uh, Smartless talks about being the Canadian comedian, and they uh, usually geek out into that. Like, why are Canadians such good comedians? Like, why is there such an abundance of them in in Hollywood and stuff? And and it, I think it's a bit of that chip on the shoulder, not from there. So you had to you had to work a little harder, or, or you don't feel any entitlement. And so I don't know if it's a Toronto, uh, you know, we often, especially in Quebec, you know, oh, the Protestant Toronto-ness. I think it's just because Toronto is the center. And if you're there in Canada, at least, and, and, and then you have, when you come from outside, you feel that, that need to hustle a little more and not take anything for granted. Just like Mark, you should see Mark when he's walking the streets of Montreal. He's ass kicking everyone like <laughs> <laughs> with your leaf shirt on. Kind of embarrassing. <laughs> That's right. Just saying F, F everyone. Right? This is my allegiance. Chip on the shoulder for sure. Speaking of hockey, actually, I geeked out uh, on YouTube yeah. and uh, look, I, it's, I go down rabbit holes of like, I wonder how many video views he's had and which is his top video. So when I look in YouTube, Tony Chapman. Uh, well, there's some musician dude, but up there, number three, 218,000 views is actually uh, the big, it's, it, you're on the financial post sort of channel or, or whatever it is. And, and uh, it's the big send off for Don Cherry, best end to the story that's dividing our country. And it, so I was like, I hadn't seen it. So I, I actually gave it a listen and, and we're and talking about hockey. I got to hand it to you. I don't know if you're a hockey guy, but you stickled, stick, you know, a bit cliche, but it was a hot potato conversation. It was Don Cherry was fired and you stick handled your way through that brilliantly, man. Like seriously. Oh, I appreciate it. I'd love to see it. I honestly, I remember doing the video. I did a lot of stuff with financial post and you know, the whole uh, Messiah jury, the Raptors and everything else. And it was a tough conversation because he's iconic for sure. Um, and you know, there's part of a lot of people said he's the best before due date. And a lot of people that were, how could that happen? And, um, and you know, it, it's, uh, it was a, it was a big moment in Canada. I'm always, I'm amazed at that character, the Don Cherry character who played out so well as Rob Ford. He played it out as Donald Trump. He played it out at Al Bundy, Archie Bunker. These people that you're fascinated with and sometimes consumed by because they're great characters. Whether you like Donald Trump or not, history will say he was a character. He was a character that people paid attention to. And that's the thing about interesting thing about Don Cherry, because, I mean, you know, hockey analysts, I'm not sure how many will be remembered, but Don Cherry will be spoken about for the next 50 years because he was that character. Bob McCallum became a very successful he carved out a niche because he could say things like Swedes are weak. Yeah. He really carved out a niche. You know, you go, right? well, you're not allowed to say that. 
No, you're a hockey fan. You believe it if you happen to be a Vancouver fan going, how come the Sundines didn't show up in the playoffs? You feel that. Whether it's true or not, you're emotionally invested in that statement. <laughs> and that's what characters do. They, they, they're, they're not, they, they take off the filter yeah. and they say, so, you know, it's interesting to see, but, uh, but it's trouble being a character like that is you eventually run out of runway. Yeah. Especially if you don't reinvent yourself. You're about to mention Bob McCowan, and that's someone who I, you know, grew up listening to in Toronto, and I still did when I was here. And like he also, at the same time, carved out that sort of character of himself. It wasn't as obviously, you know, divisive as Don Cherry could be at times, but it, it was a fantastic almost character of of those sort of like shock jock sports almost, but with an intelligence behind it that could really back it up. Absolutely, he was. He was. As he says, and he talks about, he was a nobody. Until he carved out the Howard Stern role. You know, the character, the Don Cherries of this world, those sort of big, bold, loud, they kind of say what maybe some of us are thinking at times, but don't dare to say. In this era of like attention deficit, like, do you have to be like that to get attention? If you try to get a mass audience, that's one of the plays to do. I mean, the other side would be... uh, Someone like Oprah that's consistently positive. Uh, you know, someone that someone like whether you like him or not, uh, Doctor Phil that you know solves uh, major mental issues in forty two minutes. But they're, <laughs> but they're consistent. Whether you you know, but I think nowadays emotional connections is much more personalized. We've moved from mass to my, and because of this world, I only could, you could pay attention to the comedians you like. On the podcast, you're not forced at seven o'clock at night because someone's curated these comedians and hoping you like the show. You mm-hmm. can, it's, so we're we've gone from a drift net to fly fishing, and the the hard thing about agencies is it's very difficult to monetize a single fly and put it on the line. Uh, where it was very easy to monetize at one time when I put eight million dollars behind this one thirty second ad, and it was everything, and we put activated against this ad. So it's a different world, but I just I want to. That- tra- I want to translate for those who don't know what's <laughs> we're fishing. Fish come from the water. <laughs> they don't just show up in a grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> and some people catch them with nets, and others with one little fly. It's a hook, actually. Sorry, a little translation. And they go after a beautiful. They go after a fish they imagine, and they cast where they think that fish is. And I think if marketers start realizing that is the future of building connections is, is one, one fly and one fish at a time, it's tough to do because everybody still talks about impressions. Read this article on LinkedIn. I go, why, why are impressions so important to you? Impressions to me are interruptions. I put my ad out and got 2 million, peop- 2 million impressions. Chances are you've interrupted a lot of people that were consuming content. And if instead of that, how about making an impression? Versus buying impressions. Think about the difference of that. Anyways, I'm wandering again. No, but I love yeah. it. Yeah, and I'm going to steal some of your 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 one-liners that are actually say it all in a in a nutshell. Please do. I'm going to please well, do, I, and I may reference you or I may not, depending. I've on. never I, everything everything I've stolen in my life. I rarely reference. <laughs> hey, so so back on your podcast, you've had many guests, and I'm sure you value all of them, and 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 you have to say that anyway. Uh, but is there any, you know, conversation or lesson, one that kind of was like a boo, like a breakthrough, like, holy shit, that is a memorable thing forever? W. Mitchell comes back from the uh, Vietnam War. Incredibly handsome guy. Brad Pitt looks. Uh, gets a job working the trolleys in San Francisco. Buys himself a brand new motorcycle. Uh, coming back from his first flying lesson where he flew solo. He's taking the, learning to be a pilot. He gets sideswiped. His motorcycle goes down, gas tank explodes, and he's burnt beyond recognition. They can't believe he lives. He, 95% of his body, he's got fingers for stumps. Uh, and I've met him many times. I've had him as a speaker at events that I produced. And he fights his way back, and he fights his way out of the hospital. And he says, in the middle of, middle of one day he finally gets his hands unbandaged. He doesn't realize he's only got stumps left. There were... He gets out of the hospital. He he's, he's finds his way back. His skin's so sensitive that even air feels like it's, it's somebody's lit a torch to it. 
But he said, I want my flying manuals when he's in the hospital. And they're going, you crazy? Learns how to fly again. He's taking off uh, ice on his wings, six passengers on board, and his plane crashes. All his passengers get out. He becomes a paraplegic. And he spends the rest of his life on a very simple thought. It's not what happens to you. It's what you do about it. Listen to that podcast. If that doesn't change your approach, when you're having a bad day, things aren't going well, clients pissed you off, W. Mitchell on Life Matters. That is one of the great stories. Many stories, honestly. There's some great stories. Honestly, this podcast is not about me, so I can say it. Some great stories, but I would say you want to start with one W. Mitchell, uh, Orlando Bowen, Mark. uh, uh, There's so many of them. So wait, that lesson, you know, because we're now in pandemic time, a lot of the, you know, the the, the mental health is a huge uh, side effect of what's going on. And, you know, and so, so you listen to the, the Mitchell podcast and how does someone who's in that rut, you know, like depression or, and, and not being able to see through the darkness, like, how does that type of message get them out of there? Like, they're there. They're stuck, you know? Like What he said, and think about this, is, well, there's a thousand things I can no longer do because I don't have my legs. I'm disfigured. But there's 9,000 things I can still do. Where should I put my focus? Regret or pursuit? Because those 9,000 things, I'll be lucky to get 100 of them done in my life. And that's, that was his attitude. And he just is wonderful. He speaks all over the world. And when I book him up, he doesn't come in with a handler. Uh, you know, he, he, Velcro shirt because he hasn't got can't use buttons. He's the most extraordinary human I've ever met. I was on this walk in the streets of San Francisco about 15 years ago, and I see this uh, coming out of a theater, uh, someone in a wheelchair with a rugby shirt, striped shirt, and this tall blonde. And and I hear him, the voice, and I and I yell, Mitchell, he spins around his wheelchair, Chapman, what are you doing in my hometown? <laughs> I go, I go, what are you doing with her? Is the question. And, and we laughed and laughed and laughed. And that's that's Mitchell. Beautiful story. That's a that's a, that's a must-listen podcast. I just love the two last names too. Mitchell Chapman. Sounds yeah. so like that's all he calls himself is Mitchell. He, he had to put W in because they refused to. He changed his name to Mitchell. And he said, No, no, you need a first name. So he just called himself W. Doesn't stand for anything. This is known as Mitchell. He's, he, the guy's uh, he's a he's a beautiful character. Well, that that's awesome. So look, um, we remember earlier on. I said we do these rabbit hole things. It used to be the Fast Five, and what happened in the Fast Five? You know, quick five questions ended up being rabbit holes. So now we call it the Rabbit Hole Five. Okay. Uh, Mark, you ready? You want to lay out the first one here? I I actually think we should change the last three letters to uh, UEP. By the way. Yeah, our initial question was going to be, if you're going to start a lemonade stand tomorrow, what would your USP be? But I guess it's the UEP now. Great question. I would, it would be organic. It would be uh, an ingredient that helps people with their cognitive ability. And I would set it up in uh, retirement homes that need a lot of love right now. Nice. And now we need a song, Mark, or a jingle. What's the one liner here? What are we going to do? We need a jingle for that. I don't know. I was thinking kombucha for a second, but then I guess like kombucha brewed by people inside, you know, retirement homes would be cool. Make lemons with those that need aid. Oh, oh there we go. Thank <laughs> God I had a creative team going on with me. All right. Or, or we'll do like Mavu does all the time because we live our lives on this video. So whenever there's a good news in the agency, he goes like this. Fire, firework sound effects. Anyway, yeah. uh, I'm going to do this one because I don't want to embarrass you, Mark. But uh, what happened to the mustache, Tony? So I got remarried and I met <laughs> my wife. And at the time, I thought it was a really had a good, like a long hair, the facial hair, uh, and the goatee because I'd moved on from the Tom Selleck mustache 10 years after Magnum was off TV. It took me a while. And, uh, and six months later, my hair's short, cleanly shaved. And I realized that a great insight in life that more often than not, your life partner, uh, when she looks at a guy, would, looks at it and says, 
that's the beginning of the marvel. But I'm going to spend the next rest of my life chiseling away and just helping <laughs> perfect. And she's the most amazing lady. And I look now at my look now, and I go, yeah, it looks a little bit more intelligent than trying to be uh, trying to be the uh, the rock star. So I give credit to Marion for speaking of Tom Selleck. Apparently, the, there was some show where they did a. I think it was Conan O'Brien or someone like that, where they did like a funeral for his mustache or something like that. Like he came on the show without his mustache and they were like, they didn't even talk about what he's supposed there to plug. They just talked about his mustache and they, I think they did like a funeral yeah. or something crazy like that. You know, That's like, perfect. there's your mustache too. Say your last words. Um, well, I did this television show recipe to riches and that's when I really went off. And because the, the makeup artist <laughs> said, you really don't look good with that mustache. <laughs> okay, Marketing Hall of Fame. I got a beef. How come I'm not in there? Come on. I'll make sure you are. I've got full power. And that is the biggest lie of, of currency ever. But you should be nominating people. Get involved. Okay, you fine. should be in that. See, I never just so- <laughs> <laughs> Who have you not had on your podcast, but you want to have on your podcast? Rick Hansen. Uh, who I'm working on right now would be a wonderful story to have on. Um, yeah, Rick Hansen. Let's put it, see, by saying it, we put it out in the karmic universe. So it might, nice. it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Last question. I've been doing this to all the guests on the Mojo Moments is what advice would you give your 17 year old self? Take philosophy, take psychology, take history. Don't be in a race just to get out and be the entrepreneur. Because uh, when you open your mind to that, I think you become a much uh, better human being. Boom. Well said. And thank you. You're now validating why I studied philosophy. Thank you. So, Tony, that was awesome. I know you got to jump. But uh, listen, I really enjoyed it, man. Well, it was awesome. You were great. Enjoy, and we'll let you go. Thanks for coming on. S- stay safe. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Obviously, a lot of our guests uh, we've crossed paths with over the years, so we have a bit of familiarity. Yeah. Like Tony, I've I've never actually spoken with, and it just felt so natural right out the gates. Um, sweet guy, super smart, inspiring as hell, full of mojo. I know, Mark, we, we've changed the game here. I, I said, hey, dude, I think that mojo moments will be better with you actually <laughs> in the cast with me not just in the the bookends of it uh, and I, and i'm just getting used to you being there dude so next time i know i i think you know new rule like rather than having it, for all our listeners out there we have like notes by the way and we actually prepare and uh maybe i shouldn't see your notes that way i don't steal them like i steal everything so that's good lesson i think because i was stealing i was stealing mark's material Anyway, so awesome. Thank you, Mark. You're, you rock it. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, Noah and all the team at Cloud Raker for letting us do what we do here and having fun talking to great people. And a special thanks to Chris Vellin, who makes it sound pretty. Stay with the mojo.